he would give you the shirt off his back. But if you tell him that cutting a lunch program means a small child will go hungry that day, he won't understand it. That's an excerpt from my conversation with today's guest, journalist, historian, and author Sam Tannenhaus. Hi, my name is Ian Ebright. This is Today Plus Everything, Conversations in an Anxious Time. Those of you who know me will probably be as surprised as I am to have anything to do with a podcast. I'm sort of like the like cliche, stormy-brained creative type. I like to point to numbers as a reason not to do something. So, you know, oh, I'm late to the game. I'm unoriginal. And as numbers go, you know, with podcasts, there's only billions and zillions that already exist. But I'm hopeful that there will be a space for this podcast, hopefully based on the quality of the guests. And speaking of, you know, I thought about starting this about a year ago, um, last August in 2019. My daughter Eden and I were kind of producing it together, trying to get it off the ground and knew who I wanted my first guest to be. But it's taken a year to make it work, uh, and he is my first guest, and I think it's even more sort of um, appropriate and timely given what has unfolded in 2020 and what is unfolding in 2020, literally, <laughs> as you already know, but to the minute, right? It's like every day is new and seemingly da- more dangerous than the previous, um, and as Sam and I were setting up this podcast, it was hard to keep up with my research because um, things are sp- sort of accelerating so quickly. So I'll share a bit about myself, uh, introduce Sam, and talk about uh, the context of how I was introduced to him, and then we'll jump into our conversation. Uh, My teens and 20s, I was a film critic uh, for websites in New York, Los Angeles, and my own in Seattle. I went to film school at Seattle Film Institute in my hometown of Seattle, where I still live with my wife, Lauren, uh, and our kids, Stellan, named after the actor, and Eden. Um, In my 20s, kind of did the white pages and query letter attempt of writing feature length screenplays and sending them out and thankfully didn't get very far because they're terrible screenplays but it was enough to burn me out which was also good because I was nowhere near ready or uh, in any way to be like telling stories I thought it was all about like the cool shot and the cool sequence so I kind of got burned out and left uh, my attempt at filmmaking I blogged for six years for sites including Relevant Magazine on politics, faith, and human rights. And in those six years, really kind of found my voice in terms of the kind of subject matter I want to explore. And also in a cliche way, unfortunately, I feel like I kind of met myself by going through like personal and family hardships. At the tail end of that six years where I was sort of coming down off of the the blogging thing or it was sort of expiring for me. My wife was pregnant with our son, Stellan. She's in her her third trimester. Um, And I've got insomnia, which is new to me at the time in my 30s. And so I start writing my first ever short film screenplay, which would become From the Sky, my first film as writer-director. It's a short film about a father and son living nomadically in the Middle East, trying to stay out of the war on terror as U.S. drones are sort of buzzing overhead and militants visit their camp. The film uh, played a bunch of film festivals, including Oscar qualifiers, won awards, it aired on PBS and on Alaska Airlines, and was featured in Movie Maker magazine. Uh, My next film as writer-director was 2017's uh, The Devil Needs a Fix, sort of my riff on C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters meets The Great Divorce, mashed with early cinematic David Mamet, House of Games, uh, paired up with Jonathan Glazer's really memorable movie with Scarlett Johansson called Under the Skin. 
That uh, short film uh, also played a bunch of festivals, including Oscar qualifiers, won awards, is the current short film on my favorite movie website, Cinephilia and Beyond. And since then, I've been writing um, either series um, with those two films, editor Eric Frith, or feature scripts of my own. My latest feature script um, placed in Blue Cat, which is a prominent global screenplay competition. But as you know, if you know anything about filmmaking or indie filmmaking, uh, getting anything produced of any quality is really hard. Um, so since my first short from the sky, I've almost been continuing to make shorts as a response to the longer stuff that I can't seem to get made for the life of me, um, which is also fine because I really like these shorts. And I've got my third one uh, as writer-director, Pinwheel Horizon, uh, with an international cast and crew I'm really excited about. We were all geared up and funded to shoot in May, and I won't say any more because you know what happened in 2020. You're living it. Um, we're hoping to shoot that one as soon as it's safe for all of us to do so. And in the meantime, I've been playing um, kind of the asshole reporter, <laughs> Trent Maeda, in the came out of left field, surprised to be doing it, but 2020 is weird, so why not? Little, like, you know, zero-budget web series called White Action News, where I'm essentially sort of spiffing, um, spoofing, I think is the word, not spiffing, <laughs> spoofing Fox News and just white culture in general, and have been doing that um, in a very, like, family-oriented, socially distanced way with my kids serving as videographers, my son Stellan <laughs> stars in it sometimes. I can't seem to talk my daughter Eden into getting in front of the camera, which sucks because she would be great, but she's a really awesome videographer. And here we are a year later, uh, and I'll introduce Sam. Sam uh, Tannenhaus is my guest today. Uh, he is literally the person I wanted to be my first guest a year ago when we tried and failed to start. And again, I'm happy about the timing because this conversation is so much more timely. Um, I was introduced to Sam in a film called Best of Enemies. I think one of the 10 best films, uh, 10 best documentaries I've ever seen. It's by Morgan Neville and Robert Gordon from Tremolo Pictures. Um, and it concerns the 1968 presidential election between Nixon and Hubert Humphrey, particularly ABC, who at the time was sort of fledgling in ratings and budget. And instead of doing the milk toast commentator that was popular in that day, when television, as the film would say, was sort of the town center where people went to get consensus, if you can believe it, rather than to sort of be polarized and divided. They didn't do that. They went to two popular commentators, William F. Buckley Jr. on the right and Gore Vidal on the left. And what unfolded was great TV, but really what unfolded, as the film would say, was these guys were a harbinger of sort of the Fox News, Ghost of Roger Ailes, left-right dichotomy, where everything, no matter how trivial, is like fodder for political gain and weaponized. And I, again, don't have to say much more than that because you understand exactly the landscape we're living in. In that film, Sam Tannenhaus, my guest, is one of about a dozen commentators. And for me, he is the standout. So I'm really excited to have and share this conversation with you. Sam is, uh, again, a historian, author, and journalist for outlets including The New Yorker, Esquire, Time, Prospect Magazine, The Atlantic, the New Republic, and The Washington Post. He's been editor for both the New York Times Book Review and was a contributing editor at Vanity Fair, where he's also written. Uh, Sam's book, Whitaker Chambers, a biography, won the Los Angeles Times Book Prize and was a Pulitzer Prize finalist, which I can't say. Uh, and he's taught at universities, including the University of Toronto and 
uh, as you'll learn more about in our conversation, he is currently working not on just a biography of William F. Buckley Jr., the definitive biography, because Sam actually knew William F. Buckley quite well. And all of this is relevant today because, as we'll talk about, this film, more than I think any other documentary I've seen or political documentary, nails in a nutshell way, in the mainstream political sense, who we were and as a result, who we are. And so we'll talk both about um, a bit of historical context, our present sort of political crisis. And I see that as twofold, right? It's like the internal disorientation that we're seeing in the era of Trump, where uh, at least conservatism um, doesn't even match its own historic definition. Uh, And then, of course, the crisis is uh, based on circumstances. I'm excited to share my conversation with Sam Tannenhaus. Uh, To introduce him, I'm going to play you a clip from South by Southwest's YouTube page if you want to go watch the clip. It is a minute from Robert Gordon and Morgan Neville's incredible film that you have to see, Best of Enemies. Gore told me he hired a researcher. He wanted to paint National Review as being uh, racist, if he could, anti-Semitic. I don't think he was really interested in conducting a debate about the issues or about the parties or about the policies or about the platforms of the two parties. What he wanted to do was to expose Del Buckley. Their confrontation is about lifestyle. What kind of people should we be? Their real argument in front of the public is who is the better person. Sam, uh, you've been writing a biography on William F. Buckley Jr. Uh, Do you agree with the commentator in that clip? I would put it a little differently. And um, I would say what each, the case each is making is that his opponent, his adversary is more dangerous, is the more dangerous man, Um, which is worth keeping in mind because it reminds us of how so much politics works. And we're seeing it again right now. It's not really about necessarily making the case for oneself as against one's adversary. And that's really what Gore and and Bill Buckley, Gore Vidal and Bill Buckley were up to there. Uh, Each was trying to say the other is a real menace. And then you decide which is the greater menace. It was funny. I was talking to my wife as we were watching it recently, prepping for this conversation today. And I just like had one of these realizations that felt stupid. I was like, I just realized for the first time at 41 years old that, um, you know, documentaries, good and bad, they get commentators, they get historians and writers, and they take all of these quotes to build what is the film's consensus. But it doesn't mean that from one person to the next, the commentators in the film would agree on a lot of this stuff. They're just sort of unwittingly contributing to however the edit is putting it together. So I was actually going to ask you, do you kind of agree with the film's conclusion that this was, as the film says, these debates in 1968 was really the harbinger of this weaponized left-right dichotomy that we have now? Well, I think they make a strong case for it. You know, the only um, uh, caveat I would add, and it really does not differ from anything in the film, Uh, It's just to expand things a little bit is that Buckley had 
much more fruitful and positive debates with other opponents at this same time. In other words, this is it's Buckley at his far from best. And I think mm. probably Vidal at far from his best. Nevertheless, there they are doing this, and it's them for sure. So it's not to say that um, it isn't authentic, and it may very well be that the legacy of those debates outlast, I think, builded something like 1,500 firing line programs through the years with oh everybody you could think of, Muhammad Ali, the Black Panthers. Somebody said... Uh, there's a book about firing line by a young writer very much on the left, and she says that Bill Buckley did more to introduce white America to the Black Panthers and uh, in those days called Black Power Arguments than they would get anywhere through mainstream media because Bill thought people should hear them, even yeah. if he disagreed. And that's the side that's missed. And um, and I don't fault um, the filmmakers at all, uh, uh, Morgan and Robert, for this. They're telling their story, and they tell it extremely well. But mm -hmm. there's this other side of Bill that I feel bad about. He was really embarrassed about that. Vidal wasn't. Vidal was proud of that. Mm. Um, and you may remember uh, Matt Chernauer, who was very close to Gore Vidal, he was interviewed in that film, and he said Gore Vidal kept pictures of of the of Buckley, and he talked about him incessantly. I never heard Bill Buckley make a disparaging remark about Gore Vidal. I never heard him do it once. I should fill people in who either aren't familiar with the history of the film. Basically, you know, at the height of the film, each of these guys, when I say soil their reputation, they they cross the line. So. Uh, Bill Buckley makes in real time on TV of Gore Vidal a slur that, you know, related to his sexual orientation that would be considered a hate slur today. But that's preceded by Gore Vidal, basically, not basically, all out calling uh, Buckley a Nazi. And the this is really like a defining moment in terms of the trajectory of the film. And it sounds like, you know, in the way that this kind of like stuck to the garment of these guys' careers, right? Uh, and this is the card that. Ted Koppel played at the recording that you were at. Is that correct? Yes. What happened was after uh, Bill Buckley made the final recording, the final episode of Firing Line, I believe this is 1999, and uh, he invited me and various other people. Um, I'd begun working on, on this book. Um, and uh, so I was in the audience. Then after that program ended, Ted Koppel, who then did his own program, uh, Nightline, came mm -hmm. on to the set to interview Bill Buckley for Ted Koppel's own program because it was kind of a tribute to Bill Buckley. And during it, he played that exchange with Vidal, where Vidal uh, insults Bill and Bill insults uh, and Buckley insults Vidal. And Buckley was stunned. And I believe Koppel says, do you want to comment on that? And he says, no. And then wow. he came up to me afterward and said, I thought that tape had been destroyed. And I think the reason he said that was, I think it was part of the libel suit and lawsuit that there was some, there was some understanding that that would not be played again. 
So that was not naive on Buckley's part. He thought that he had kind of eliminated that from the from the video record, which of course he can't do and he hadn't done, but he was really stunned by that. Whereas Vidal, I'm told, Matt Turnauer, again, who's in the film, told me this, Vidal considered that one of his great triumphs um, that he'd exposed Bill Buckley. I had taken the film to mean that you overheard Buckley say, I thought that tape had been destroyed. You actually knew Bill Buckley. How, how well did you know him and how did you meet him? I, uh, I knew him extremely well. Um, I met him when I was working many years ago on a biography of one of his heroes, um, uh, Whitaker Chambers, who's sort of the founder of uh, modern conservatism, an anti-communist who was involved in a really famous um, court case, first congressional hearings, then court case, right before the McCarthy period. It's kind of the the curtain raiser for McCarthyism, the Alger Hiss spy tra- uh, trial. And I wrote a biography of Chambers, who was a very complicated, interesting literary man. Mm. And um, Buckley had become at once kind of a protege of Chambers and a patron, which was very common for Buckley, because he was wealthy. And because his father, who was an extraordinary figure, gave a lot of money to a lot of people, which Buckley also did. Buckley was incredibly generous. You know, there are pianists, musicians strewn throughout New York whose careers Buckley financed and subsidized because he admired great classical musicians. Hmm. And um, so at any rate, he also admired certain intellectual figures, writers. And Whitaker Chambers was one of them. And I knew in order to write my biography of Chambers, which I began writing a long time ago, it was published in 97, I think, and I started working on it in 89 or 90, that I needed to get to interview William Buckley and also get entree from him. When you write these biographies, people have to have to open doors for you. So I wrote Buckley out of the blue. And for someone who was as famous as he was then, he mm-hmm. was probably the only one on earth who would answer every letter he got. Now, for those of you who are looking, listeners looking to become kind of intellectual entrepreneurs or maestros, as he was, it helps to have two secretaries, a secretary, and then the secretary has their own secretary. That's how <laughs> Buckley did it. So every letter got answered. But um, that's how I met him. So that was in 1990. Um, and then uh, he stayed in touch as I worked on the book, it was extremely helpful. Used contacts to help me get grants, things like that. Wow. Extremely helpful, open doors. And then uh, I, uh, he liked that book. And his son, Christopher Buckley, the novelist, also liked the book. And they, we kind of talked about my then doing Buckley as a kind of sequel to the biography of Whitaker Chambers. So that was the late 90s. So that's when I got to know Buckley. Um, I'd met him working on the first book, but I really got to know him when I started writing it. I interviewed him many times, go to his house, you know, and on his boat, all these things. So. Wow, that's and it's such that's so interesting and such a great segue to kind of like the, the second of three parts of our chat today, because like, I really almost, you know, feel free to challenge the thesis, but I think we're in political crisis and I see it as twofold. One is sort of internal that we're disoriented, you know, that whatever we think of left and the right today is really, really been thrown in the blender and mixed up to where it's not helpful because we can't even agree 
to the definition of, of things, let alone the issues themselves. And then the other is obviously like it's a, po- a political crisis that we're in. It's it's everything I don't even need to state about 2020 and beyond that both feels seemingly new and historically rooted. You know, these things that are rapidly unfolding. I think that's a lot of the problem why we can't get towards solving anything because it's just, you know, other than like the do not call list, it's like, but there's nothing that we agree to. You said something in the film, conservatism is an insurgency and it's not the right fighting the far left. It's the right fighting people who are not quite far enough right. So in context of, you know, the Buckley that you knew, this side of him that many of us wouldn't know, and just as a representative of conservatism then versus where we are now, where every issue is white hot and deeply tribal. Can you unpack this idea that conservatism is an insurgency? And and as the historian and journalist that you are, where are where are we now? How how far have we progressed or or regressed? Well, it's um, well, we, I think most of us would agree that we've gone backward and not forward, at least it, in terms of our kind of civility and respect for one another. You know, some of Buckley's best friends or people he liked best were liberals and leftists, I mean, because he found them more interesting. So, yes, he did not get along with Gore Vidal, but he was great friends with John Kenneth Galbraith, who was the most visible liberal economist of the period. Buckley visited him when Galbraith was ill and dying. Buckley went to Cambridge from his own house uh, in Connecticut, Cambridge, Massachusetts, to have dinner with Galbraith you know, every week or every month. He would see him. He'd visit, he'd spend hours with him. They never said a favorable thing about one another in print, now except to praise their intelligence and their prose style. And both those things really <laughs> mattered to them. And that's something that's been mm-hmm. taken out. Uh, there's a moment... Vidal was very proud of this, where Buckley whispered to him uh, early on. He said, well, I loved Julian. Julian was one of uh, Vidal's early novels. It's about the Emperor Julian. Vidal wrote a series of of classical novels, novels set in in, in ancient Rome. Buckley praised him for it. He said, I really liked it. And And in the interviews, even when they were going after each other, Buckley would say, well, you know, Vidal is tremendously clever and witty. Um, and those are the concessions that have become really difficult for us to make that I don't understand. Um, and, uh, that's because I think so much of our politics and much of it does begin on the right is really not about politics per se. It's these culture wars we're hearing about all the time. Um, and which I, again, you see in the film, it's a cultural battle. Um, it's what, what's the true America? What's the country really about? And I've been digging into some of that uh, for uh, the Buckley biography. And there were certain things I assumed about the United States that turned out to be untrue. Or rather, what I took to be really longstanding shared beliefs are much more recent than I understood. I'll give you an example. Interesting. I'll give you an example of one. The idea of the American dream, uh, that phrase entered the language, entered common usage during the beginning of the Great Depression. There was, that phrase wasn't used before then. A nation divided in two, fighting to the death, 
And then after the Civil War ended, in many ways still pulling apart, that was a pretty recent memory in 1930. Right. So when Franklin Roosevelt came in with the New Deal and said, well, let's have programs that touch everybody, although they excluded many African-Americans in the South, as we know much more clearly now, but with the idea that it's going to bring many people in many different regions of the country together. He had to explain what he meant by that. People didn't know what he was talking about. He would say, well, we don't, why not have a program that will apply as much to people in the West as it does in the East? They were seen as separate places. Bill Buckley said to Mike Wallace in 1958, he said, I am a counter-revolutionary. I want to roll back the New Deal. And America will not be the place it should be until I've accomplished that. That's fascinating to me because, you know, I'm, I'm kind of juxtaposing that in my head with an article you wrote uh, in 2009, which you're, you're kind of famous for called Conservatism is Dead. You also have a literal book called The Death of Conservatism. And one of your points in at least the article, um, you were talking about conservative originator uh, Edmund Burke using all this to get back to this idea of why either side can't cede any ground. It's almost like if, you know, if I let the car in front of me go first, I'm never going to get to where I need to go. And politically, if I, you know, if I acknowledge that you're have a point or just any of the stuff, not certainly not the like good people on both sides uh, tactic that Trump uses, but ceding any ground in a human sense that we feel that we will have invalidated everything we stand for. Your point in that article, um, that Edmund Burke, this conservative originator, placed an idea of the perfect society over and above the need to improve a society as it really existed, but that he still saw sort of, um, even as a conservative, that you would have to use the power uh, of the government to, as you described, ameliorate intolerable conditions. Can you talk about that kind of a bit historically juxtaposed, again, with where we are now, which I, you know, I'm like, I don't even know what conservatives would call conservatism under Trump. Yes. Well, certainly that idea started to go away um, long before Trump. Um, it's funny. One of the odd things about Trump, I think I wrote about this in, in the New York Times at the time of the um, 2016 Republican convention, is that at that moment you could pull out a few strands of Trump and say, well, he's actually closer to these more kind of centrist conservatives because, you know, at that point he was saying he was forced expanding Medicare and Social Security and all these things because he knew that's what most voters wanted. Um, and then he sort of just got in line with the right wing, quite apart from his own you know, psychopathology, which is another matter and mm -hmm. becoming increasingly clear to all. Ideologically, Trump really doesn't have that uh, strong a set of values, if that's the word, when you, when you get over there to that question of undoing government. That almost comes more out of that kind of Goldwater, Reagan, uh, libertarianism, you know, that the government is the enemy. And Bill Buckley agreed with that for a long time, and then he began to change his mind. Um, but that was what a lot of the right came out of, was a real hatred of the government. And that built over time. And what would happen was it created a politics of hypocrisy for them. Because whenever a Republican got elected, including an ide some, you know, an ideological president like Reagan, 
um, but also uh, Nixon before him and Eisenhower, who's the first of the post-World War II Republican presidents, whom all the conservatives hated, by the way. They despised mm. him. Um, they saw just intuitively as smart politicians that you can't start taking things away from people. You can't say, well, the New Deal is over. You don't get your Social Security check anymore. It's just right. not going to happen. So what do they do? They end up with one set of arguments that's economic that had to do with taxation and regulation. And that's what's crushing us now, is they really persuaded themselves that without cutting into those programs, they would just keep making the tax uh, policy more favorable to the really wealthy and keep arguing that as long as very rich people got rich, everybody else would too, right? The old supply side economics or trickle down economics or the rising right. tide lifts all boats. Absolutely. All that stuff we are utterly exposed by COVID, utterly exposed. You know what they did in, in England? England is not a radical country. England is guaranteeing 80 to 90% of everybody's paycheck. Because that is what Edmund Burke would have said or Benjamin Disraeli would have said. Well, of course, that's what you do. Because if the government doesn't come in and take care of these people, who is? Either nobody right. will or really bad people will. <laughs> right. you know? Yeah, no, I love that you have tied this to COVID because I remember two anecdotes that you know have troubled me. <laughs> One was, I think I'm getting this right, but 40% of American households, this is before 2020, 40% of American households can't absorb a $400 emergency. And then the other was absolutely from 2020. And sort of after the first month that we really took COVID seriously, I think April for CNN, they said a third of all people in the US didn't pay rent. And so this is where I'm like, you know, like some people will tend to see conversations like this as the kumbaya argument. And I'm like, no, this is the pragmatic argument because if we don't find a foundation of things that we agree to. Um, and if it's all just fodder, what what's, you know, personal between Buckley and Vidal or any commentators today or me and whoever I'm arguing with, this is quickly going to inform like just the complete dismantling of e any sort of rationality as a response. It seems that we just don't have any right now because we can't agree to what's rational. Yes, you know, I'm remembering um, from the 1970s after Nixon uh, resigned and Gerald Ford was president. And Ford was kind of a nice guy, not the brightest guy. Um, and for, <laughs> uh, you know, a conservative, conservative Republican, but not an ideologue. And, but he would not approve almost any spending bill. And I remember someone saying, Jerry Ford is the nicest guy in the world, and he would give you the shirt off his back. But if you tell him that cutting a lunch program means a small child will go hungry that day, he won't understand it. And wow. that's what I feel we're seeing now. Let's, let's make a huge uh, jump here and say there might have been a small window when Trump very briefly, let's say at two weeks, which is for his 
you know, kind of stamina and acuity and attentiveness right. a long time. And so yep. let's say for that period, he actually was getting the message that there was a problem. What does he do? He calls these guys into Washington, puts them on the on the uh, uh, the Rose Garden in, in the Rose Garden ceremony to praise him. Talks about what great businessmen they are and how they they're going to save the country. When everybody was telling him, there's just one thing you need to do. You need to use this Defense Authorization Act, which Truman brought in beginning mm-hmm. of the Korean War, and commandeer the economy and make this stuff happen. The same is true, if you ask me, of the $600 and $1,200 checks that went out to people. That was the old style answer to a new style problem. And what McConnell and Republicans won't accept is our system has broken down. The structural flaws have been exposed. We do not have a universal health care system. It's right. tied to people's jobs. What happened when the, when they lose their jobs? They don't have health care. Right. And, and right. even now, now our government won't help them. I, I completely agree with you. It's it's interesting. I will add, you know, my wife and I were talking about if you're – Livelihoods not only tied to your job, but you are very. You can almost see money as secondary to health. Well, I have to have healthcare because I have to be breathing. But the money, you know, I can go into debt for a while. Like, what does it do to people's conflict of interest and willingness to stay and be sort of subservient in an employer where it's not only livelihood in an economic sense, but literal healthcare? And this whole model that we've established is not built to pause. You know, the minute we pause. It just crumbles. Well, the point you made about the $400, that was shocking to me when I read it too. And it was uh, by somebody I know a little bit, a very good writer, Neil Gabler, very good biographer, wrote a biography, Walter Rinchel, that uh, I will use quite heavily in in Mm. my Buckley book. Uh, And uh, he wrote an essay in the Atlantic Monthly saying, I am one of those people who do not have $400 that I could pay. And he goes wow. and explains why, you know, how he sent his kids to very expensive colleges. You know, he gives you all, all the explanations. But the main point of the article is that he is just one of many, many people. That is a failure of our system. Uh, right. Cornell West had a great remark, I thought, on CNN, uh, where he said, we are seeing the final breakdown of a failed social experiment. That yeah. social experiment was the idea that we could privatize our economy. It goes back a lot farther than you realize. Um, I did a piece, maybe some of your readers are familiar with it. I did a big thing on uh, Betsy DeVos and her family for Vanity Fair a couple of years ago, and she's now back in the news. And what I realized was people were getting that relationship all wrong. You know, the DeVos is an extremely wealthy family. Her brother, Eric Prince, he's of Blackwater fame, right? That's right, yes. And um, and and wanted to privatize the military. Got very right. close to Trump, and they're from what they call what's called out there West Michigan, you know, Grand Rapids, Michigan. And um, and I realized was I, as I was reporting the story that everybody was getting it backwards. People like Deva- and Devos family is the Amway family, which is oh my gosh, which came really close to being just dismantled with indictments for being a pyramid scheme. Mm. That is what Trump's uh, uh, economics is, is a pyramid scheme. Trump would go out and give 
presentations at the Amway Grand Hotel in in uh, Grand Rapids during the uh, the recession, the, the Great Recession of 2009. Trump University, if you go back and look at the documents and descriptions of it, the idea of it was to exploit the anxiety of people who were losing everything or uh, or had lost it all in the Great Recession and sell them on this hucksterish university so they could sell real estate. That is Trump's idea. Right. And this is this has dogged him in so many places, obviously, with like the, the Taj Mahal, like the casino where, you know, the contractors who literally created something, which was the infrastructure, were never paid. But the whole thing went bankrupt, you know, so he he, he like uh, you were speaking of Anway has managed to like survive and escape these schemes. Yes. And then, and then somehow spin a narrative that this is exactly what we need. Right. The, the like the scrappy businessman. It's like anything but. Well, and here, Ian, this is where I think the big point is, too. This is what I find myself thinking about, is, okay, after a certain point, it's not about Trump. It's about the 63 million people who voted for him, and what are they going to do now in this coming November? Um, I think we have to accept how much of what he is about and what he does is somehow baked into who we are or a lot of us are as a people. And that is what the story, that's what the story of COVID has been, is that we're the country who's, you know, I, uh, I teach some in the University of Toronto. I, I did it a couple yeah. semesters. Ago, a couple of years ago, and I was going to do it again, but of course now I have to do it on Zoom. Right. So I was you saying, can't, you you can't leave. I don't think many of us have really let that sink in that you yeah. cannot go to Canada. No, nor can you, I? You know why? We have become the shithole country. Right. Yeah. yeah. Ironic, isn't it? You were the shithole. Yeah. Right. You won't let us in. This it's crazy, and I, I I love where this conversation is going. I was actually going to um, kind of serendipitously read a quote to you to get your feedback on it from Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, um, and she she's making I think a similar point that you're making when she says he can stay, he can go. She's speaking to Trump. He can be impeached or voted out in 2020, but removing Trump will not remove the infrastructure of an entire party that embraced him, the dark money that funded him the online radicalization that drummed his army, nor the racism uh, he amplified, I meaning sort of reimagined. And I think it's this thing of like, you know, we'll call it 2020 is really like exposing who we are, right? That the narrative has just, isn't holding water, hopefully, or or is it? Or is the fact that we can't get unified and get this pandemic under control proof that the narrative is more powerful than the veneer washing off on these things like the American dream? Um. Boy, you know, that's that's the $64,000 question um, <laughs> because there is the better side of us. You know, I tell people, um, don't forget that, you know, we get it in this country gets ahead of the curve in a lot of ways. You know, there were many of these kind of fake populists who were elected. Well, we got the biggest and fakest of them all. Um, it's interesting. When I was writing for Prospect Magazine, I was covering um, the election and in 2016 and at first they wanted a lot of stuff on a lot of pieces on Hillary Clinton and at one point I said to them she's actually not the story this is during the primaries the story is actually Trump 
And they kind of got it. And then the Brexit vote came and then they really got it. And then it was all Trump all the time because Trump paradoxically is the America first isolationist who's also kind of a global figure because there's so many other mini Trumps out there or kind of power Trumps out there. Right. And uh, yeah, I mean, we're seeing it. So I tell people, don't forget, however, there are three presidents in the 20th century who were elected more than once with, uh, or rather, uh, actually, if you do the entire century, four who were elected more than once with 50% of the vote or more. Um, Franklin Roosevelt was one. Dwight Eisenhower was another. Ronald Reagan barely makes it. And the one who comes out ahead of Reagan is Barack Obama. Obama got 51% of the vote or more twice. And only two other men have done that, Franklin Roosevelt and Dwight Eisenhower. And the first time, so we we, we elected him too, you know. That's right. No, I love it. And you made a point about him in one of your articles, um, you know, and it's, it's, I, my first short film from the sky, Arabic language short, it was sort of my best attempt at um, saying something about the war on terror. And obviously I made it during uh, Obama's eight years. So I have objections to his foreign policy, which didn't originate with him in terms of drones, but were certainly accelerated by him. Um, And yet there's so much to admire when, looking at the man of Obama and what he tried to do. And one of them that I think that you not only caught on to in one of your articles, but was articulated by him and one of his foreign policy guys, Ben Rhodes, if I'm getting the name right. Yeah. Really this concept right. of reality, like taking, taking the world as it is, um, you know, and, and that uh, juxtaposing that with McCain's line, sort of infamous line of, I want everyone to be rich, which is like, you know, that's like sort of statistically impossible. Right. And of course McCain knows that, but like, this is the idea that we like, you know, one party plays to the rich and sort of sells this impossible vision of the American dream. And maybe to your point about, uh, how popular, literally popular Obama was to be elected twice uh, by those numbers that there was this pragmatic side to him uh, that is, I don't not timeless in the cheesy way, but like, you know, speaks more to our history than a lot of the loftier stuff that just leaves us with nothing, you know, lofty in, in, in words, but just, you know, nothing in, in terms of policy. Well, um, he has one really enduring uh, poli- domestic achievement. And that was, uh, the, uh, you know, the Affordable Care Act, uh, which is, being stripped away from people right. as we speak. But I'll mention something else that's interesting to me about that, which is um, I think in some ways, I was going to write this piece once and it just didn't seem right. And so I didn't do it. Is that at the time, especially if you're an older person like me, and I agree with your criticism of the foreign policy, I think it was off on, on a lot of that. One of my own, uh, heroes, idols, uh, Gary Wills, the historian, uh, really, he was one of the group of historians invited to the White House and he really gave Obama hell about Afghanistan early mm. on. He said, this is going to be your Vietnam. And was, but um, is that Obama felt to an older person like the beginning of something new. But in fact, he was the culmination of something old. He was really the culmination of that meritocratic John Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson, 
sort of new frontier, great society worldview. Um, he was, and I, I don't want this to be taken in the wrong way, um, right. because many will, because the phrase has become really loaded. He was the great affirmative action president in the sense that affirmative action as it was originally conceived in the Kennedy years, by the way, before he was assassinated, it was just a phrase. We want to take affirmative action to improve the society, basically, to give more opportunity. Doors were open that had been closed before in the idea, with the hope that you would get this brilliant, forceful character who came from a different place, yet reinforced all the best things we like to believe about ourselves. And that was Barack Obama. So he fit almost into that kind of John Kennedy mold of the charismatic, dynamic, young face of America. And to somebody like me and my wife, I remember we were practically weeping when he gave that victory speech in Chicago. But if you were a much younger person, you say, you still have those people locked up in Guantanamo? Right. Right. You're still fighting the wars? You're sending drones out to kill people? You, you, or have you seen Michael Moore's film, the one that's partly set in, in Flint? Have you seen it? Oh, my goodness. I, you know, he's, I think he's getting better as a filmmaker. I feel like the last half of his filmography is his best work. And yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. And you're going to, you're going to talk about the water stunt. It's right? shocking. It's shocking. So we'll set the table super quick. Uh, was it Rick Snyder? Was that the governor at the time? Yes. Like, basically, you know, like Gotham city levels of illegality, like nakedly rerouted the water from uh, sort of like a perpetually giving clean source to like rewarding a contract to, I think people he was associates with. But the source was, you know, contaminated. Everyone knows Flint now. And and to sell it, what hurt, I think, the local community more is what you're going to talk about. Bar- Barack Obama comes out for a visit. So by this time, children are sick. People know they can't use the water. We've seen the videos of, like, the brown and the lighting on fire when they fill a cup. And Obama visits. And I'll let you take that. And it's a largely African-American population. And they're feeling the way Moore presents it in this film. So they're talking to all these people, these poor people who don't have decent water to drink. I mean, it's something you expect to see in two centuries ago, you know, in in China or some really poor African nation. This is happening in heartland America. And um, so their hope is President Obama because it's implied, and I think, I agree with you. Michael Moore is really good at this. He kind of lets you think and you hear people say, well, at least there's somebody who cares about us in the White House. One of ours is there and he's going to come here. Sam, by ours, do you think that that's the feeling of the black community, that they have, you know, someone from their community or that it's more of a a person of the people that he, he has this ability to, you know, come from somewhere and to and to relate essentially and not be one of the elites well that's a really good question but let's say it's a little of both um because he there's pride i mean look i'm a jew no jew has ever been elected president if it happens i'll feel some pride in in my lifetime i think Mm -hmm. african-americans very justly uh, felt that yes you know here's here's a guy who comes from our world who's been elected and that gives us hope 
So, mm. and also somebody who did come from quite humble circumstances and with a connection to the Midwest, very strong connection to the Midwest, both to the plains through, through, through Kansas and then through, you know, right. Chicago, right? So right. there he is. So it could be both those things, but somebody who will hear them and see them. Mm-hmm. And he, and he goes to this event where he's, uh, he meets first with the people in Flint that sort of city managers and they talk him into things. They tell him, well, everything is getting better. And he goes up in front of the audience and he takes this kind of comical sip of water from yeah. the bottle there. And you see them physically deflate. Yep. This, they have lost him. He is not one of them. He is right. not one of them. You know, um, it's just like, you know, when somebody becomes really, really rich or really, really famous, they become a different person. Doesn't matter what their background is. And somehow mm-hmm. that has happened. And then Michael Moore just delivers the goods, which is why he's really good. He tells you voter turnout really dropped in Flint yeah. in 2016. Yeah. I have a lot of sympathy for the Tana Hesse Coates argument that many people could not deal with eight years of an African American president and then we're looking at a woman president. I get that argument. The fact remains. It was a lot of people who had voted for Obama out of a feeling of loyalty and connection who didn't show up for his anointed successor in 2016. That person was not speaking to them. And I don't blame Hillary Clinton for this. They were not speaking to them. I was really struck by a story, uh, uh, an op-ed piece that I used one of my first jobs, my very first job in journalism. And I was 40 years old at the time when I got it. So it's not as if I, the opposite of a wunderkind, uh, was working <laughs> as an editor at the op-ed page of the New York Times. So I always still read it closely and occasionally do things for them. And there was a piece that Stanley Greenberg, you know, the famous pollster who does all the uh, 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 Macomb County uh, market research and sort of focus group testing, because that's kind of a classic, what we now call, you know, white working class community in, in Michigan, he did a piece um, after, at the end of Obama's second term, saying there is very little Obama legacy, that there are fewer Democrats in state offices. The same thing happened to Dwight Eisenhower, by the way. Eisenhower was an enormously popular president, but he didn't create, and he created coattails when he got elected, but he didn't leave a legacy of Republicans who followed him. Because he was so much about himself as a singular person. I think that was also true of Obama. There was something very self-contained about Obama. So that if a movement was created, it was almost a cult built around him. Rather than new waves and generations of people being brought in. The one who did that better than he did was Bernie Sanders. Bernie Mm. Sanders is the one who brought AOC into politics. And so here's the other uh, point I'm, I'm kind of think mulling over these days. I was kind of a Bernie Sanders guy, and I wrote a piece in the Washington Post comparing him to Ronald Reagan because that's the kind yes, of I read that. Yeah, it was a great piece. Well, now I think Biden has a weird opportunity. I was never a big Biden guy. He might be the guy who could actually preside over some big structural changes, precisely because he's the last guy you'd ever imagine would do it. You know, when when Franklin Roosevelt got elected in 1932, he'd been pretty successful as governor of New York, 
But in the national stage, he was a washout and has been. He was a vice presidential candidate in 1920. The, the ticket that lost by historic margins to Warren G. Harding. I mean, that's like, you know, that's losing to a pretty lame figure, right? And Cle- That's like losing to the Cleveland Browns. Yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> and the next guy who supervised or superintended huge change was Lyndon Johnson. Hmm. Lyndon Johnson was a guy who was in the Senate, was so hated in the North by African-Americans and by labor that he wouldn't even give speeches uh, in the Northeast because he thought the audiences would hoot him off the stage. What happens after the tragedy of, of JFK's assassination? LBJ is the one who's able to come in make the transformational change with the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, the two last truly great pieces of legislation in American history. And we're now going back almost 60 years for that, shockingly. That's how long it's been. Franklin right. Roosevelt, wow. kind of a mediocrity. What does he do? He realizes what Herbert Hoover does not, that you have to change the whole system. The system is finished. And he even said this fairly early on, Right around the time he knew he was going to get elected, he said, we have to figure out how to redistribute the economy. That was like saying, we have to figure out how we're going to send somebody to the moon, right? And then what do you have? You have guys who, because they're kind of these comfortable old shoes, they come (laughs) in and say, well, maybe we need to make this big change. Biden sounds like he might be prepared to do that. He's made a huge proposal for climate change, right? Like $2 trillion or something. He's also taken over Bernie's agenda. Absolutely. You've got to shoot up the minimum wage much higher than it is. You have to give everybody health care. And Biden can do it and make it sound maybe like it's common sense rather than ideology. And that's why he has the advantage that a Warren or a Sanders might not. So, and I think that's why African Americans, very wisely, they're always the heart and soul of the modern Democratic Party. They just did the calculation and said, okay, this may be the guy. Let's forget about what he said about busing in 1970. And maybe this is the guy who's going to sign the bills we need to get the right things done. So it reminds me what you're sharing. Uh, it gets us a little bit back to Ben Rhodes, you know, one of Obama's foreign policy guys and the posture of the Obama administration kind of taking the world as it is. And this thing of intentions, right, of, you know, I was hard on Obama, you know, at the time when it, he sort of caved to single payer. But, you know, with healthcare being one sixth of the economy or whatever, like that we got what we got in stages, which was sort of a common but not popular um, talking point of both Hillary and Biden, this sort of like graduated approach, right? We, we can only get there pragmatically. And if we have pure intentions, we're not getting anywhere if we if we go super, you know, idealist. And I've wondered about Biden too, who I also, he would not be my first choice and I have concerns about. Um, but I almost wonder, you know, if he's doing this strategically at the outset and his intention is just the strategy of winning, I guess, given the alternative, my hope is that not only the intention, but what comes from that can be that, you know, the intentions will improve over time. Yes. I mean, George Packer had a, uh, the writer had a devastating portrait of Biden, Biden in his book, um, 
the of the unwinding where Biden comes across as this really kind of selfish, egotistical, unkind guy. And there's just all this stuff about him that gave me a, a very negative impression. But then you think, OK, you look at Roosevelt, you look at Lyndon Johnson. Abraham Lincoln, separate category. The man was a genius, but and 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 people who really knew him always saw that one of America's greatest writers. Uh, all this, but set him aside. But still, you have these guys who've been kicking around for a long time, and they know they're not getting elected in a beauty contest. It's not going to happen for them. They are winning because the country is in crisis. They've been elected. Remember there was that great headline The Onion had after Obama won? Black man gets worst job in America. And so they're coming in. At the, they, they know it's only the crisis and the disaster, the catastrophic place the country has reached that is the reason they're elected. So they come in with that whole ego thing set aside. They right? Yeah. Like, they, like, you know, the We Are the World uh, song, right? You leave your ego at the door. So mm-hmm. they come in and they know there's only one thing they can try to do figure out how to help the country. What do people need? And that's the one thing in all their years in politics they really know. Yeah. That's what politicians know how to do. So you He's have got his sea legs, right? Yeah, true politician. Also, uh, uh, I'm told by people who know politics in a way I don't, who are closer to these things, that Biden is not intimidated by people who are smarter than he is. He'll fill the room with people who are smarter than he is when it comes to policy. And yeah. so if they say, you know, what you have to do here is you have to strip away this employer thing. Yeah, you're going to lose a lot of votes. No doubt about it. It's, it may cost you the next time around in 2024, but this will actually put people on the footing. It's what they really need. And he says, what the hell? If that's what they need, we do it. Then there's a certain kind of politician who can do that. I'm savvy enough to know what I can do and can't do. And maybe this is the window of opportunity to do it. Maybe right now is when you do it. Right. Well, I was going to ask you, Sam, we have 10 minutes left and I wanted to spend sort of split that in half. We'll end by looping back around um, to Buckley and Vidal and sort of the finest point of best of enemies for me and how relevant I think it is for right now. But before we do that with the the, the next five minutes, I just, yeah, I wanted to almost take your temperature <laughs> on where we are, because your article that you've written that I think encapsulates the journey at General Barr in a way I have not seen encapsulated, and it's scary. Uh, It reminds me a little bit of Cheney, who Cheney under uh, George W. Bush was a very different statesman than when, sorry, Cheney under Bush's dad uh, was a very different statesman than he was with W. And similarly, Bill Barr in his previous lives in politics, seemingly very different than the guy we're getting. And you're openly questioning, will he sort of sabotage the U.S. election to win a second term? And you yourself, in my experience, being the 0% conspiratorial, um, you know, you're this established guy, like, without asking you to look into your crystal ball, like, what do you see between now and November and just after? I feel like the stakes couldn't be higher. Again, uh, what's happening in Portland, these um, armed but un- designated uh federal agents hauling protesters off in unmarked vans like this thing's going to accelerate we've got a pandemic on top of long-running uh 
racial inequality that's thankfully boiling over into the mainstream. We've got Trump feeling desperate and being exposed even on Fox News by Chris Wallace. Like what with the stakes being this high, what do you see happening between now and the election? Well, I'm I'm the world's worst prognosticator. I mean, my, my <laughs> candidate early on was, was Kamala Harris, so it shows you how good I am at this. Um, I, uh, I, it, it's interesting, by the way, that you compare Barr to Cheney because that's who he reminds me of too. Yep. The, you know, around the the incompetence and crazies, there are always some incredibly smart people who know exactly what they're doing. Yeah, um, they and that was. Part of the whole affect, by the way, of uh, Bill Buckley and his cohort of um, conservative intellectuals at National Review. Remember, they began as supporters of Joe McCarthy. Um, mm. They figured, okay, this guy, we're not having him over to dinner. You know, we're not going to do the the Proust <laughs> reading this weekend with Joe yeah. McCarthy, but he's doing the job that needs to be done over there. And I feel that's how Barr looks at Trump and how a lot of people, there was a very good piece by Evan Osnos, the young journalist, young to me anyway, in the New Yorker on, on Greenwich, Connecticut, right wingers. Did you happen to see this? I, I didn't know. It. Well, he goes okay. back and he talks to them and he says, you would be surprised how many of these people, because you think of Greenwich as, you know, it's like, um, as far as wealth goes, it's like, uh, oh, what's that? Seacliff in San Francisco, you know, or, you know, or um, uh, Malibu in L.A. You know, it's a super, super wealthy, but it's old families. And right. I have met some of those people one time or another, and they're old style establishment Republicans. You know, the ones who've been sending their kids to Yale and Amherst for like six generations. And they all vote for Trump. Why? Because of that Buckley-Vidal thing. Who's more dangerous? And hmm. that's one of the questions. That's, that's the bar argument. That I'm sure he wakes up in the morning and tells himself AOC and Joe Biden are more dangerous than Donald Trump. That's a perfect segue to where we're going to end. And before I ask you the final question, uh, I'm going to let everybody in on where they can keep up with you. Uh, I've been talking to Sam Tannenhaus. Uh, you can follow Sam by reading his books, which are available wherever you prefer to buy them. Uh, one is Whitaker Chambers, A Biography. Another book that Sam has written is The Death of Conservatism. Uh, you can also keep up with Sam um, by just Googling him. He writes for a variety of sources that I've shared at the outset. Um, most recently... He's been doing the majority of his writing for Prospect Magazine, which you can find at prospect.co.uk. And sooner rather than later, uh, Sam will finish and publish um, what is now like I iconic in the way that it's been anticipated and talked about, the biography on William F. Buckley Jr., which will be out soon. Uh, and Sam, I wanted to end on sort of looping back around to the beginning and to the personal. Uh, my favorite bit of commentary that you share in The Best of Enemies um, comes at the end where, again, these men have crossed the line as they would define it for themselves. Although, as you shared, Gore sort of considered it a high moment that he had done this in, in calling Buckley a Nazi. And this sort of follows both men in some way or another throughout their lives. And these men, of course, age and get older. And the audiences, in some ways, sort of retreat to something younger and more contemporary. And at the end there, you describe in the film, uh, and I want to end with this and just get a bit of insight from you, in terms of the where do we go from here, we've talked about where do we go uh, in terms of circumstances, potentially. 
where do we go interpersonally one to the other and, and ourselves when we are so deeply tribal and are, are sharing almost no virtues anymore? Uh, and you describe these aging media personalities, Buckley and Vidal, as having sort of a silence inside themselves in the film. And then you quoted a poem by Wallace Stevens called The Snowman and a line in particular from that poem, one must have a mind of winter, the nothing that is not there and the nothing that is. And in terms of how we proceed in this deeply divided, deeply uh, tribal landscape where the stakes couldn't be higher, what does that mean to you in terms of how we navigate this very tumultuous time? Well, you know, I was uh, an old English major and uh, maybe some of uh, your audiences too. And um, that poem of Stevens's, it's, it's one of his early great poems, is really about how uh, there's a temptation as an artist, as a poet, to build a lot of metaphors, to see things as other than they are, to see them as something different. And that really the, the, the purest understanding and a kind of beauty comes from seeing things exactly as they are. 